0: Father God, when we sing that song, Yes, I Will, I can't help but think of Brother Jerry and Sister Cheryl and their family who have lost a daughter this week. And I know of a number of families that have lost children, or grandchildren, or spouses, or siblings. And Lord we ask for incredible comfort in the midst of such incredible pain. And the body would be the body and come around loved ones. And yet in the midst of it, Father, we also want to acknowledge the truth of the song that you are Lord. You are sovereign that there are no mistakes. And that though we don't have answers to questions that we would ask, not short of eternity, we glorify you. May that be true in all of our lives, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, at the peaks and in the valleys. May we acknowledge that you are great and that we are passing through and this is not our home. And we have an eternity with you, if we know Christ, your Son, an eternity which is our home, which is our future and our present, as we long for that day. And Father, as we talk about your inspired and errant word today, caught in the midst of our sin in a sin tainted world, we're thankful for your guidance. And we ask once again that you would impart truth to our head and our hearts as we look at your word. Speak to us, challenge us, equip us. As Paul says, we forget what lies behind, and we strain forward for what lies ahead. And so, Father, regardless of our past, today is our present and future. Help us to make decisions today and tomorrow that bring glory to your name. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are certain topics that, because of the nature of the topic, they have the potential to bring division. They have the potential to divide us. Politics might be exhibit A. Now, from time to time, people will come to me and they'll say, Jeff, I'd like you to speak about a particular politician or a particular platform or throw your support behind this or that. Generally, it aligns with what they want. But I won't do that. That's not God's calling on my life. It might be God's calling on some people's lives. It's not God's calling on my life. I think God has called me to share the gospel, to preach biblical truths to the best of my ability, empowered by God's Spirit, to try and live a God-honoring life. That's God's call on my life, not to be political. I'm not saying politics are bad. It's just not my calling in life. Politics are divisive. Let me prove it to you we could talk on any number of issues, right? Gerrymandering, free college for all. We could mention euthanasia and abortion. We can mention any number of morality issues or capital punishment. We could mention Second Amendment rights or impeachment. I suspect that almost all of us have an opinion on every topic I just mentioned. And you need to know that I won't go out of my way to speak on any of them, but if the biblical text talks on it and politics have come into the biblical realm, then I'm going to speak on it, not because it's political, not because it's with one party or one platform, but because God has spoken. And so we don't avoid where God has spoken, but we don't go out of our way to speak on issues that are political because politics have come into biblical territory. Politics can be divisive. Today I'm not talking on politics. Another area that can be divisive, and admittedly I have a lot less self-control in this area, is sports. I'm quite opinionated on sports. One of my favorite pictures is this particular one. Oh, I love that picture. <laughs> you know, go pack, go, right? They clearly love the pack. But if you're foolish enough to root for a team in Illinois, you get what you have coming to you. There's no self-control in the area of politics. Or excuse me, of uh, the area of sports. But then we could go into an even sillier realm. Opinion on topics like, I love dogs or I love cats. Or the only good cat is a... I did not say it, did I? (laughs) Or go out for dinner or stay in and have Netflix. Or Pepsi or Coke. Or who gossips more, men or women? Or do the do, or drinking do is like drinking rat poison. Or who's your favorite Star Wars character? It's clearly Yoda, I know. Or youth pastors, are they real pastors or just wannabes? I'll weigh in on that. They're real pastors, and they rock. Some topics can be divisive, can't they? Today's topic can be divisive. Not really because the text isn't clear. I think the text is rather clear. It can be divisive because it impacts our lives. And sometimes it speaks to our past. And sometimes it speaks to our present or our future. It can be divisive because it's one of those topics that has impacted all of our lives. It also can be divisive because it's one of those topics where sometimes we're not looking at the text all that carefully, but we're allowing our biases, we're allowing our traditions, what we've heard in the past, to impact what we think rather than God's Word. It can also be a little divisive because even among the top evangelical scholars in the world, there's a little latitude, not a lot of latitude, but there's a little latitude in how we interpret these texts, and we're going to look at more than one, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 to 15, We'll be in Malachi 2, we'll be in Matthew 19 and Matthew five. These are the texts that guide today's message. I want to pick up in 1 Corinthians seven, I want to read verses 10 to 15. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is, you can find similar words uttered by Jesus while he was physically on earth. So Paul is repeating something that Jesus taught. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. What he's saying is, if you open your red letter edition Bible, you're not going to find these exact words out of Jesus' mouth. I don't care if you have a red letter Bible or not, whether they're red or black, they're God's word. There's no difference. What Paul is saying is Jesus didn't say this while he was on earth, but the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, talked to Paul and told Paul what to write. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Those are God's words. They're not bound by those bonds of marriage. That's what not enslaved means. God has called you to peace. That is, if you're the innocent spouse and a dissolving of the marriage takes place, there is no taint of sin on you. You can live in peace. As you and I begin, I want to take on the persona of verse 20. I didn't read it. But essentially, verse 20 says, whatever state you're in, remain in that state. Yesterday is gone. You and I can do nothing about yesterday. We can do a lot about today and a lot about tomorrow. It may be that some have suffered through a divorce in your past. My heart goes out to you. Divorce is painful, and that pain often continues. It may be that you're a victim in the divorce. You didn't want it, or you didn't cause it. My heart goes out to you. It may even be that you caused the divorce. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. So if need be, we need to agree with God, confess, and then repent in the power of God's spirit, turn away from our sin and towards righteousness, and then we need to move on. So maybe if you cause a divorce and you haven't yet confessed and repented, maybe that's what you need to do today, but then you and I need to move on. So today we're talking about today and tomorrow. And we're talking about, if we're in a marriage, how to fight for the marriage, how to pray for the marriage, how to allow the marriage to grow positively, how to be committed to the marriage. And if we're going to be married someday, we're talking about the same thing. I want to read to you a verse that I've contemplated a lot. I suspect I've contemplated it more than anyone else in this room. It's because it's a verse that rocks my world, and it touches my world, because I often officiate at weddings. Probably in the last two years, I've officiated almost 30 weddings, about 15 a year. And it's been like that, or a little less, for 30 years. Years I've officiated at a lot of weddings. And, and I read Matthew 19, verse 6, and it just rocks my world. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. And how I read this text is this way. A couple... Maybe he gets married in an unwise fashion. Maybe they shouldn't have gotten married. Maybe there are great circumstances that would say they should never have gotten married, this, this man and this woman. And yet God says, you did it, I'm all in. All the chips are on the table, I'm all in. I'm joining you together. And because I have joined you together... Let not man separate. Try interpreting the text any other way. Try finding anyone in history that has interpreted the text any other way that is a responsible exegete. That's what God's saying. Maybe you look back and you say, you know what? (laughs) This was a bad idea. God might say, you're right, it was a really bad idea, but my chips are all in. Make sure your chips are all in as well. Because I joined you now together. And what I have joined together, let not man separate. This is really countercultural. We live in a day and age where you can find a pastor or a counselor who readily says over and over again, You're not happy? Get out of the marriage. Things aren't going well? Get a divorce. The kids are suffering because you guys are yelling, spare the kids and end the suffering for all. That's the day and age we live in and yet God says, I have joined you together. My chips are all in. And when I have joined together, let not man separate. In fact, scripture says that the separation of marriage is violent. It's not Jeff's word. That's God's word. Let me read to us out of Malachi 2, the 16th verse. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. Picture what happens when a young couple, they come to see me, she's got a new rock on her finger. They are excited and they have a date and they wonder on my calendar is the date available and would I officiate the wedding and, and we discover that the date works and we sit down and we begin some premarital counseling. We're going to have uh, a number of sessions together and we're going to have a form that we're going to try and create just the service that they want. And we go through all the steps and all of the options, and they choose this and not that, and they want this and they don't want that, and we work our way through it. And then, and then I've got to say, are the relatives that are divorced? Pity the young couple who don't have a seasoned pastor who will ask this question. Pity them. Because I've got to know who's going to sit where. I've got to figure out if I need to separate a mother and a dad or an aunt and an uncle who are no longer married and might might cause some disruption at the wedding. I have to do that. Because no matter how many years go by, every so often I'll have somebody who doesn't realize this isn't about them. And they take the opportunity to take swipes at a former spouse. Divorce is violent. Lots of times I'll have someone come into my office and it'll be a decade or two from their parents' divorce. Maybe three. And they're still grieving. They're still hurting. They need to talk. They need to work through it. Violence is divorce, or divorce is violent. I'm not trying to hurt anyone who has suffered through a divorce. I'm not. I just want to speak real about where we go from here on out, because divorce is violent. How many couples do we know that have gone through a divorce, and because of it, both spouses are living at a lower economic level than they lived prior. Sometimes one or both are now on the edge or even below poverty level because they did fine together, but now they're dividing into two houses and two incomes and and divorce can be violent. And sometimes I'll have somebody who has suffered through a divorce and, and they've come in and they're really hurting. They've lost some of their friends and they're angry. How could their friends... Desert them at a time like this. But sometimes you are friends as a couple. And it's not that they're trying to desert you. It's awkward. And whether you have foisted on them or not, they've got to decide who's right and who's wrong. And who do they side with? And who do they not side with? Or we're not going to side with either. And so they back up and they back out. And it feels like abandonment. Divorce is violent. And the violence continues on when the kids have birthdays. Who do you invite and at what time? And the violence continues on at family weddings. And every Thanksgiving and every Christmas and every Easter. And every Memorial Day and every Labor Day and every July 4th. And if you don't think that's true, you should sit on my side of the counseling table. It is true. And people have to work through it. Divorce is violent. It's not the easy fix-all that our society has sold it to be. So God says, as far as it depends on us, to the degree that we are able, stay in the marriage that God has placed one in. Now I would not be fair to the full counsel of God if I left the message there. I'd like to leave it there. But I've got to go to the other side and say that clearly God has given permissive grounds for divorce. For a believer who has no stain upon themselves if they pursue divorce in such circumstances. That's clear in scripture. And we're going to look at that. One of those situations is in verse 15 of today's text. So allow me to read it to us. Verse 15 again. "But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Enslaved suggests that there is freedom. From the marriage, peace suggests that there is no taint of sin on the innocent spouse that walks away. Now, what does it mean when it says somebody leaves? Crease a tie. First, let me talk about what it doesn't mean, and then I'll talk about what it does, because there's really three interpretive questions that we need to interact with in verse 15. And the first is, what does leave mean? It doesn't mean that someone is immature and in the heat of an argument goes stomping out and slams the door and comes back several hours later. That's immature, but that's not what leave means. It doesn't even mean that someone goes away for a day or two in anger, and then comes back. I wouldn't recommend that. But that's not what leave means. It doesn't mean that you have a counselor, maybe a very wise one that says, you two need to live in separate addresses for a month or two, work on yourself with a goal that we will work on you two together to restore the marriage. That's not what leave means. Leave means that the spouse walks away, does not come back, files for divorce, cannot be convinced otherwise. Leave means leave. And the text says that the innocent spouse is no longer enslaved, is not bound to the marriage, lives at peace, does not have the taint of sin upon themselves, and I would say is free to remarry. That's the first interpretive question. The second interpretive question is very sticky. Does leave include physical abuse? I can tell you academically that Chorizotai may or may not have that semantic range. It would be on the outside of the semantic range. But I can also tell you I believe it's part of the semantic range. This is where maybe scholars would disagree. Some would say what I say. It's part of the semantic range. Some would say not. But I look at the entirety of Scripture which says protect the innocent. And so if somebody is being physically abused, my advice always is get out, get to a safe place. Call the authorities. Always. Always. And then you ask, do they ever go back? I think at the very minimum, four conditions have to be met. First condition, there is real separation. Second condition, during that real separation, there is professional counseling through its entire process. Third, the professional counselor has to believe she or he has to believe that it is safe to go back. And fourth, the victim has to believe that it is safe to go back. Unless all four of those are met, I think leave has taken place. And we have an individual who can walk away from the marriage. They are no longer bound. There is no taint of sin. And if God were to bring a safe person into their life at another relationship, they are free to remarry. Finally, we have to look at what it means for an unbelieving spouse, verse 15, to leave. The question always is this. The text says an unbelieving spouse leaves. What happens if a believing spouse leaves? Because it happens, right? I would say you have to read 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 together. Together. That's a lot of sermons for us, but you have to really read them together because it's all the same topic of morality, immorality, and marriage. And Paul already answered the question. He answered the question back in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, if a believer acts like an unbeliever, treat the believer as an unbeliever. And so you take what Paul has already taught us and put it a few chapters later, remember chapter breaks are added, versification is added so that we can navigate our Bibles. That's not how Paul wrote it. It's this flowing letter, and 1 Corinthians 5 to 7 goes together. And so I would say you apply what Paul has already taught. If a believer leaves and does not return, the innocent spouse is no longer bound and as that peace is not tainted with sin and is free to then remarry. The first scenario that God gives us for permissible divorce is desertion. And so remember the principle, as far as it depends on us, we hold on to the marriage, but sometimes it doesn't depend on us. Sometimes people leave. The second principle is also not dependent upon an innocent person. And that is this whole idea of adultery. I want to read two passages. Matthew 19, 9. And then Matthew 5, 31 and 32. They both use the same word or form of it. Pornea or porneas. So Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, Pornias makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In both passages, a form of the same word, pornea is given. We need to know that this is a broad word of sexually deviant behavior. It's not the narrow word of fornication, that's moikea. This is the broad word, and I think it includes at a minimum bestiality incest, severe addiction to pornography without a sincere attempt to break that addiction or fornication. This word includes all of that. And God says that if you're the innocent spouse and that's what's going on in the marriage, then there is some freedom. Why? Because more than just adultery has gone on, the oneness that God created has been shattered. Remember, we have to read 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 together, right? Well, what did 1 Corinthians 6, 16 say? It says this, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two should become one flesh. The text tells us that the oneness that occurs when God joins a man and a woman together is shattered when someone goes outside the marriage. And a new oneness, even a one-time event with a prostitute, creates a new oneness, destroys the old oneness, which allows the innocent spouse the permissible ability to stand back and say, I don't know if I'm going to continue in this marriage to reform a new oneness. And that person, the innocent one, is given permission not to be bound, that is, held to the marriage, and can leave the marriage with peace without the stain of sin. Let me push on this illustration a little bit further. Let's suppose that this has occurred... And the violator has been confronted, or she has been confronted, he or she. And that person confesses, agrees with God, repents, turns from their sin, goes to accountability, goes to counseling, goes through all the steps. Can the innocent spouse still walk away? Yes, the innocent spouse can still walk away. There's no asterisk in the text. Now let's change my illustration a little bit. Let's suppose that the innocent spouse says, no, I'm going to work at this. We're going to pray for the marriage. We're going to invest in the marriage. We're going to get accountability. We're going to make good parameters. We're going to have counseling. We're going to work at it and sincerely tries for a few months, and then feels like, no, the oneness cannot be restored, can that innocent spouse still leave? Yes. Now, I think there has to be a statue of limitations. Because otherwise, they'll never go forward. This is interpretive now. It's not in the text. I don't have book, chapter, and verse. It's just an observation having walked through a lot of people in this situation. I think you have to have about six months of Statue of limitations for the innocent spouse to say, yeah, I'm really all in, or no, I really can't make this work. But at some point you have to say, if we're going to go forward, we're going to go forward. And that doesn't mean after six months trust has been restored. If you've suffered that, you know that that is not true. Trust is not restored in six months, it's incrementally restored over a lifetime. That's reality. But you build trust one day at a time. Trust is destroyed in one moment, it's rebuilt over a long period of time with a lot of counseling, and a lot of accountability some walls, some parameters, some safeguards, constantly telling your spouse where you're going, even when you feel like it's ridiculous because you have shattered trust. It's not ridiculous. You need to do that. God values marriage. And as far as it depends on us, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's out of our control. But as far as it depends on us, We pray for the marriage. We invest in the marriage. We seek counseling and help for the marriage. We do what we can to safeguard the marriage. God is all in. What I've joined together, let not man separate. So God values marriage. Value the marriage you're in. Yesterday is gone. I don't know about yesterday. Today, value the marriage. You're in, Or, if you're not married but one day hope to be, value that marriage. Protect that future marriage. Second, sometimes the situation is beyond an innocent spouse. And God has granted, by His grace, the opportunity to step away when the oneness has already been destroyed without the stain, to live at peace before the Lord. And I'm going to finish the message as I started. This is a hard topic. This is a topic where sincere believers who are looking at the text may have slightly divergent understandings of it. Not wildly divergent, slightly divergent. We need a little bit of grace to one another. But this is what matters. We've got to look at the text. We've got to grapple with the text, not with our tradition, not what we have been told, but with the text. And if by grappling with the text we come to a slightly different conclusion, that's okay. Allow the text to speak to our hearts, but we need to be believers of the text. And God says, first and foremost, He wants us to value marriage. That's what the text says on the topic. Of marriage. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I pray for the marriages that are in this room, my own included, that we would value those marriages, that we would fight for those marriages, pray for those marriages, seek help for those marriages, invest in those marriages. Father, it is Remarkable in Matthew 19.6, that even if somebody got into an unwise husband-wife marriage, you're still all in. And you join together, and you want that marriage to succeed. Father, may we want our marriages and those of our friends and our relatives and those we interact with to succeed. And Father, for those who are not married, I pray that there's some value because we all know marriage, or maybe someday we might be married, just as next week there will be value for all when we talk about singleness. Father, may we not be so myopic to think that every text has to speak to our at-this-moment situation. But yet it might speak to a future moment or our ability to interact with someone in a different life circumstance than us. Father, help us to value what you value. For your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.